Some of you may be wondering, uh, I thought we were in the book of Acts. Why are we now all of a sudden in the gospel of Luke? Well, uh, the plan was originally for me to preach this particular sermon next Sunday. Next Sunday is the week before Easter. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. That was the original plan. Mark assigned this to me a while back. But Mark and Kelly, a little over a week ago, decided that they would get Kelly induced a little early, in which they did this past Thursday. They had their daughter, Maggie, was born. And Mark called me a little over a week ago and asked if we could. Yes, Maggie Ruth McAndrew. Mark asked me if I could go ahead and preach this a week early, so that's why we are all of a sudden in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke 23, please hear this public reading of God's Word, starting in verse 32. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds? But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed... And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this incredible passage today, I pray that you would bring us all to the foot of the cross today, and I pray for those especially who may be spiritually at a dry place right now, and maybe they've just dragged themselves to church today, or they've drag themselves to the live stream, and I I pray that the, the sparks from the cross would land on them, and they would be warmed, the affections would be stirred. I just pray for all of us that you'd open our eyes to the glory of Jesus that is so clearly radiant from this passage. And I pray that we would be changed, we'd be transformed by the sight of the glory of Jesus. And Father, if there are any who do not know you yet, that are listening to my voice, I pray you would do what you did to this criminal. 
I pray you would awaken them to the glory of Jesus. And I pray they would repent and believe the gospel. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh man, I could be in real trouble today on this particular passage. Last Sunday, Elizabeth Prada gave me a gift, and uh, I got home and opened the gift up, and originally I thought, oh, this is for Liliana, this gift, and I showed it to her, and she immediately knew what it was. Uh, It was a whole bunch of handkerchiefs like this, and I I brought one with me uh, today, which is going to come in handy, I think. I already used it, already used it once. Um, I was reading a commentator on this particular passage, and he said, he told this story about a pastor who went to see one of his members of his church, and the the member told the the pastor to preach on a particular text. He said, why don't you preach on this passage? And the pastor was like, oh no, I can't preach on that. That's too weighty, too wonderful. I can't do it. Not ready for a passage like that. And this commentator said that's how he felt coming to this story, this crucifixion passage in Luke 23. It's too weighty, too wonderful almost to even comment on, but he said uh, it makes all expositors sort of weaklings he said, but we must attempt, we must attempt to comment on it. So I feel like that. I feel sort of inadequate to it. I feel like no matter what I say, it's not going to adequately do justice to this, but we must attempt to walk through it. Relying on the grace of God, we must at least attempt to walk through this passage. Now, I think it's important for us to remember the, the backdrop before we get to Calvary in our passage today. I think it's just important to remember the final several hours of Jesus's life. And I know we know this, but it's important just to maybe hold this in the back of our minds as we come to Luke 23. So you remember the upper room, the Last Supper, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He washes Judas's feet and just as tender, just as loving to Judas. And Judas betrays Jesus. He leaves Jesus with the eleven. And then Jesus has the, you know, the upper room discourse, and you have that wonderful high priestly prayer. And at some point, they leave, Jesus and the eleven, and perhaps a few others are with him, and they go across the Kindred Valley, and they go to the Mount of Olives, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and goes a little bit further with just them, and he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then he goes, sort of a stone's throw away, he falls on his face, and he prays this prayer, Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He comes back and he finds them sleeping. He says, couldn't you just watch one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And he goes again. Luke's gospel tells us that an angel comes and strengthens him. And it says in Luke's gospel, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus during his earthly life, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That may be referring to multiple instances in Jesus' life, but certainly it must be referring to the Garden of Gethsemane. It has to be. So Jesus in the garden is in agony. He is offering up prayers with loud cries and tears. He is sweating. We know it was a cold night because Peter was warming himself by the fire when he denies Jesus. It's a cold night, and yet Jesus is sweating. His sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The question is, why is Jesus in such great agony? Jesus was in control in every situation of his life up to this point. You think about the storm. They have the seasoned fishermen, and they are fearful for their life. Uh, uh, that they're going to die, and they wake Jesus up. He is asleep, and what does Jesus do? He simply rebukes the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still, and immediately the response of the cosmos, 
There's no more wind. The waves are, are, are gone. It's the, the sea becomes like glass. Jesus was in complete control. You think of the man who was possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus is calm, cool, and collected. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 that Greg just read. Jesus is totally in control and calm. But when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is troubled and sorrowful unto death. The question is, why was he so troubled in the garden? And the answer is, as one writer said, God was placing the cup of his wrath in the Savior's hands, and it carried the stench of hell, this cup. You see, Jesus is getting the cup of God's wrath into his hands, and he is repulsed by this cup, this odious cup, and he is in great agony because he knows he's going to have to drink from this horrible cup, and that is why he is in such great agony. And then you remember Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. And then I'm fast-forwarding through all of this next steps, but basically he endures a mockery of a trial. At some point he's taken to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sort of tries to get him to talk. He won't talk. Sends him back to Pilate. And during all of this, he's mocked. He's spit upon. He is beaten. He is scourged. Perhaps he was scourged two different times. Mark talked about this a couple of years ago. And then they bring the whole battalion of perhaps of 600 soldiers. They come and they mock Jesus. They put the purple robe on. They smash the crown of thorns in his head and they beat him with a reed. And he's lost so much blood that he cannot carry his own cross. They bring Simon of Cyrene to fill in for him. And Mark has said this before, but Mark has said, if we had seen Jesus a few days before his crucifixion, he would have looked like any average Jewish man of the time. But had we seen Jesus here in Luke 23 at Calvary, Jesus would have been utterly unrecognizable. The Bible says he was marred beyond human semblance. Marred beyond human appearance, had we seen him, his appearance would have shocked us had we seen him at Calvary. I think I would have thrown up had I seen Jesus at Calvary. And the question is why? As Mark has said, it's a picture. It's a picture of what our sins deserve. It's a picture of the horror of sin. So we should keep in the back of our minds this picture of Jesus. We should remember that Jesus is utterly physically exhausted when we come to Luke 23 in our text in verse 32. So here's, let me just give you a brief outline of where we're going. Simply what I want us to do today is I want us to basically observe what we can see at the cross of Christ. And there's going to be six things that I'm pulling from our text that we can observe at Calvary. The first thing that I observe is the humility and compassion of Jesus in verses 32 to 34. Let me read those verses. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So the first thing that I see when I come to the cross of Christ here is I see the humility of Jesus on clear display. Some of you will remember the Christmas message that I gave a few months ago in December on Luke chapter 2. And in that sermon, I talked about how at the birth of Jesus, we saw the sovereignty of God on clear display. You remember the, uh, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful emperor in the land, God turns his heart to issue this decree that all the world should be registered in order to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at just the right time for her to give birth, to fulfill that prophecy in Micah 5 verse 2. So God in his sovereignty turns the emperor's heart and he gets them there. But remember when they get there, there's no room for Jesus. And remember I said, if God in his sovereignty can turn the emperor's heart to issue that decree, certainly God in his sovereignty could have provided a room for Jesus, but he doesn't because this was planned. This was intentional. You see, Jesus was to be born in the lowest possible condition. That's the condition from which he's going to serve us all the way 
to the cross. So when we come to Bethlehem and we come to this manger scene and we look inside this feeding trough and we see the Son of God inside, we see the humility of Jesus powerfully on display, no doubt about it. But that was not the end of his descent down. As Charles Spurgeon has said, we cannot even fully comprehend the height from which Jesus came, and we cannot, we've never experienced the depth to which Jesus descended. But when we come to Bethlehem, we see that Jesus has taken a huge step down. But Spurgeon said this, Jesus kept stooping lower and lower and lower, and we come to the absolute low point of his life here in Luke 23. Just a reminder, crucifixion was the most agonizing and shameful form of execution ever devised. Crucifixion unleashed maximum cruelty on the lowest and most defenseless classes of society. Cultured Gentiles of the day were so offended by the cross that they refrained as much as possible from even mentioning the word cross. You avoided the cross in polite conversation because it was so offensive. And yet, Jesus, the Son of God, the immaculately righteous one, was crucified between two criminals. Oh, the depth that Jesus descended to save his people. This was the lowest humiliation, even death on a cross. But look at the end of verse 34. It says, and they cast lots to divide his garments, plural. This passage indicates that Jesus was crucified naked. They took all of his garments away and cast lots for his garments. What a picture this gives us, that Jesus is robbed of literally everything, even the last remnant of his earthly possessions are literally stripped away from him. His clothing is gone, and now here Jesus is reduced to absolutely nothing. Jesus is utterly destitute on the cross. He becomes absolutely poor for our sakes that we may be made rich in Him. One writer said Jesus was stripped of His clothing and hung naked on the cross. He was pure. He who was perfect purity and undefiled modesty was exposed to the taunts and stares of those around the cross. So when we come to Calvary, we should clearly see the humility of Jesus powerfully on display, but we also see the compassion of Jesus. Verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What incredible, remarkable words from Jesus. One pastor said, of all the cries that came from the victims of execution, surely none was more amazing than this from Jesus. It would have been normal for victims of crucifixion to spew out the most vicious venom on their executioners, but not Jesus. Jesus prays for those who are executing him. He prays out of love for his executioner, this this wonderful prayer that shows the tenderness and compassion of Jesus. He is concerned about the eternal destiny of his tormentors, even though he is close to death and he is in agony. So what are some applications that we can draw from the humility and compassion of Jesus when we come to Calvary? Well, certainly, number one would be, how can any of us be proud when we come and stand at the foot of the cross? How can we hold on to pride when we see Jesus humbling himself at Calvary, reduced to nothing? We cannot be. It reminded me of Philippians 2.3, which says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When we come to Calvary, we should humble ourselves and give ourselves in the service of others for the glory of God. And as we think of the compassion of Jesus at the cross, certainly our lives should demonstrate His mercy as the gift of our own forgiveness should compel us to offer forgiveness for others. And if we are struggling to forgive 
others, and if we have been wrong and the spirit of bitterness begins to arise within us, we need to come back to the cross and hear Jesus praying this prayer for his tormentors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second thing we see at the cross is we see the mocking of the rulers and the soldiers and the thief in verses 35 to 39. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So we see the mocking of all these different classes. R.C. Sproul was very helpful on this. Sproul said that they are mocking Jesus by saying he couldn't save himself, which means Jesus didn't have the power or the ability to save himself, which we know this is explicit. In Matthew 27, it says, So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. They're clearly they're saying that Jesus doesn't have the power or the ability to save himself. Sproul said, Among the many people who were gathered there at the place of the skull, Lots of people there, but he said among the many that were gathered there, there were tens of thousands who were hidden from human view. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he said there were myriads and myriads of angels were watching closely the crucifixion scene. We can be sure that the angels were paying close attention to Jesus on the cross. And Sproul said, had Jesus called on one, a single angel, observing the scene. This is all it would have taken to destroy every Roman and every political leader would have been wiped out had Jesus called one angel. The whole garrison of soldiers would have been no match for an angel from heaven. All Jesus had to do was not. All he had to do was give the signal and you can be sure that an angel would have come rushing to the side of Jesus and would have wiped people out had Jesus given the signal. But Sproul said, forget the angels for just a second. Leave the angels aside The question is, who is this who is being crucified? And the answer is, this is the God-man. This is God incarnate, the omnipotent, almighty God incarnate who could have saved himself in a heartbeat. He could have saved himself in an instant. And of course, if he had saved himself and if he had called an angel to save him, we would all perish in our sins. But Jesus doesn't call an angel. Jesus doesn't save himself. Why not? And of course, the answer is because Jesus came to save us from our sins. He came to rescue us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The third thing we see at the cross is we see these two thieves, these two criminals crucified with Jesus. Verse 39 again, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him or blasphemed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So this first criminal uses his last few precious breaths to mock Jesus. This shows the level of depravity in this individual. This thief shows no spirit of brokenness, no humility, no acknowledgement of his guilt and sin, rather than confessing his sins, he attacks Jesus. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel, for example, that both of these criminals at the beginning were both mocking Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 44 says, and the robbers 
plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. So we know at the beginning, both of these criminals were mocking Jesus at the beginning, both of them showing the level of depravity that they had. But we know that something remarkable happens to this other criminal. An incredible change happens to this other criminal. He has been awakened from his slumber, one pastor said. His eyes have been opened. He has been converted and marvelously changed on the cross. And we're going to see evidence of that change in our passage. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God. Suddenly, this man has been gripped by the fear of God, and he, his mocking has ceased. And not only that, he now shows his concern and love for the other thief. So Jesus is crucified. This thief is next to him, and he's yelling to the other thief over Jesus and says, do you not fear God? He shows a love and care and concern for this other thief. He rebukes him out of love for him. And I love this first rebuke. I love the rebuke that he says, do you not fear God? What a great question that he's saying. Do you not fear God? Don't you fear God on the edge of eternity? We are about to enter into eternity. Don't you have any fear of God? Don't you have a fear of God with a soul that needs to be saved? Don't you have any fear of standing before God? Don't you fear falling into the hands of the living God in judgment? Is there any fear of God in you? See, he's been struck by the fear of God. He cannot believe the other thief has no fear of God, so he rebukes him out of love. Again, verse 40, but the, other rebu- the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Here's the second thing he acknowledges and second evidence of his change. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. So the second thing, the second change you see in him is he clearly acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his guilt. He says, we are guilty. You see, most people that you meet on the street, they tend to have a high view of their own goodness. They have a high view of their own goodness, but not this thief. This thief does not have a high view of his own goodness. This thief sees his sins crystal clear, and he acknowledges them. He says, guilty. I am guilty as charged. He admits his guilt, acknowledges his sin. Again, verse 41, we'll see the third thing, the third change. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The third thing, the third evidence, the third change is he acknowledges that Jesus is innocent. This man has done nothing wrong. He says that Jesus is an innocent man. Now, this is a a big point, apparently, that Luke is driving home in his gospel, that Jesus is innocent. We're about to see the centurion at the end of our passage say, certainly this man was innocent. This man is dying an undeserved death. So when we come to Calvary and we see Jesus on the cross, we should hear these words, undeserved, undeserved, should be echoing around the Calvary scene when we look at Jesus on the cross. He is dying as an innocent man. And here's the final thing we see in this thief. Verse 42, this wonderful prayer essentially. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He turns to Jesus and he says to him tenderly, he calls him by his name. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, he calls him by his name. You remember Matthew chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the one who's going to save his people from their sins. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Beautiful prayer. Now, we don't know exactly how much he understood, but he knows that he's guilty. He knows that he's a sinner, and he's hanging there with his own sins heavy upon him, and he knows that Jesus can help him. So he turns to Jesus with this plea of mercy and a beautiful expression of faith. He trusts in Jesus' power to save him. 
This great sinner laid on Jesus the weight of his soul, the weight of his sin, the weight of his eternity. He believes that Jesus is the arbiter of eternal hope and eternal judgment, and he entrusts his fate entirely into Jesus' hands. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 43, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ accepted the burden. Christ takes his sins upon himself and opens up for this thief. The gates of paradise are open wide for this criminal. And this is a beautiful reminder that salvation is all of grace. Today, borrowing this from another pastor, what has this thief done to deserve it? Absolutely nothing. Today, this is grace. Salvation is all of grace. It's like the prodigal son story with, the, with the, the younger brother who's gone off and wasted everything and he comes home and the father sees him while he's a long way off and he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. It's full reconciliation, instantaneous. Today, paradise, salvation is of grace. On that very day, this man would be with Jesus in paradise and would partake with him in the heavenly joy as a redeemed one. What an incredible turn of events for this criminal. Think about his life. He lived a life of crime, maybe a violent life, and eventually he was captured for his crimes. He was thrown into an unsanitary prison. He was beaten for his crimes. Now he carries a cross, and he's crucified on this cross, and he's dying. He's at the end of his unpleasant life, and then all of a sudden he's moments away from paradise, all because Jesus saved this thief on the cross. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus seemed to say to all the heavenly powers, I'm bringing a sinner with me. He is a sample of all the rest. Yes, indeed. And I'll save the application to the very end of the message from this area. Number four, the fourth thing we see when we come to Calvary is we see Jesus becoming sin, and we see the curtain, or we hear of the curtain torn in two, verses 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It was noon, supposed to be the brightest time of day. But not this day. One pastor said, God said, let it be dark. And the darkness came rushing in. This is the day that the sun refused to shine. This darkness must have been intense and unforgettable. Everything was enveloped in sudden, supernatural, pitch black darkness. R.C. Sproul said, when the darkness came, the taunts and the mockeries ceased. Their mouths were silenced. They were there to laugh at Jesus to see him exposed to humiliation when suddenly they couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. This was a miraculous darkness, no doubt about it. Three hours. It was a literal darkness with a symbolic meaning. Literal darkness, symbolic meaning. What's the symbolic meaning? Well, there are three answers given typically to that, and I'll just give you the big one. I think this is the big reason why it is so dark this day. The Bible associates darkness with divine judgment. God is signaling His presence. 
This was a day of judgment on which the Son of God suffered the wrath of God against human sin. You see, God is issuing His presence, and He's going to judge sin. And that is why it is dark for three hours. One writer said, The one who came to bring light to those who sit in darkness is now engulfed in darkness. And I'll I'll try to read this. One commentator said, Our sins were focused on Christ on the cross, and He suffered the fiery wrath of God. On the cross, the mass of our corruption poured over Him with horror. Christ found His entire being to be sin. In the Father's sight, wave after wave of our sin was poured over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours, his soul recoiled and convulsed. As all our lies, infidelity, hatreds, jealousies, murders, and pride were poured upon his purity, Jesus was cursed as he became sin for us. And we need to remember that Jesus was without sin, and even the slightest sin would have been utterly repulsive to Jesus. So what must it have been like for him to become sin? in this darkness. Certainly this shows us how real God's love is for sinful men and women, but it shows us how seriously God takes our sin. What is some application that we could take from this? Well, I've been thinking about this passage for a while, and I put Michael to bed and gone downstairs cleaning up and listening to music, listening to music about the Savior, and one thing is it makes singing that much sweeter when you've you've come to Calvary and you've dwelt on the cross. It just makes singing about the cross that much sweeter. So one application would be you, you want to sing. You want to sing of the blood. You want to sing of Jesus and Him crucified. You want to sing about God's love for sinners. So praise, adoration, awe, wonder, worship should be one of the big applications of that. But the question that came into my mind as I was thinking on this was, why would we ever fool around with sin ever again? I mean, how can we fool around with sin when we come face to face with Jesus on the cross? We cannot when we're standing there. We cannot. But I think other application would be I just you just stay there at the cross and you're thinking, I want to love my wife better. I want to love my son better. I want to love this church better. I want to I want to use my brief little life to honor the one who's died. In my place. Spurgeon said, We're poor because we do not go to the gold country with, which lies around the cross. It's so true. I know what he's saying. We're poor, but when we come to the cross, there's gold all around the cross to strengthen us and impact us so we should be making regular trips to Calvary. Let's see if we can look at the curtain tearing now. Middle of verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is a massive curtain. It depends on, 
who you looked at, different sizes of this curtain were given, but this is the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was a massive curtain. ESV Study Bible said it was 60 feet tall, I think 30 or 40 feet wide. It was massively thick, weighed hundreds of pounds, perhaps thousands of pounds. We know, I think, from Matthew's account that it was torn from the top to the bottom. I mean, this is a miraculous tearing of this massive curtain. Again, to quote Sproul, who was so good on this, he said, on this ultimate day of atonement, the temple curtain was torn. It was as if the Lord God reached down because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, took the veil of the temple, and just ripped it right down the middle. He took that sign that said, no admittance, air quotes, no admittance. All those who are covered by the righteousness of Christ and are justified by His life and death now have peace with God and access into His presence. So now by faith in Jesus, we have direct access to God. We have entrance to the Almighty. What's the application from the curtain tearing into what this means in practical terms is that we as believers can go to Him with every need that we have. We should never think that our problems are beneath His notice. On the contrary, the Bible says we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus has opened up the way for us to be close to God, so are we making use of this access that God has given us through the death of Christ. Number five, the fifth thing we see is Jesus Christ from the cross and dies. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So if you remember, barring from John's gospel, the last three sayings on the cross that Jesus said was he said, if you remember John's gospel, he said, I thirst, I thirst. You remember the one who made all bodies of water thirst? He's parched with thirst on the cross. He said, I thirst. And they take the sponge, they dip it in the sour wine, and they put it on the hyssop branch, they put it up to Jesus. He gets it in his mouth, he gets this mouthful of sour wine. Now, one of the reasons why he probably did this was he wanted to boom out the last two sayings on the cross. And like the second to last thing he said was, it is finished. He booms that out. The justice of God has been satisfied. He drunk that cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom. It is finished. I paid for the sins of my people. And then he says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathes his last. Instead of trying to save himself, Jesus gave himself trustingly into the hands of his Father. This is a, a statement of victory and trust. Even after enduring the cross, he still trusts his Father. After all the darkness, all the pain, all the suffering, all the forsakenness, here we find him in closest communion with his Father once again, entrusting himself into his Father's care. The sixth thing that we see on the cross is these three responses uh, to the cross, verses 47 to 49. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So first you have the centurion who was in charge of or supervised the crucifixion, and he has been so powerfully impressed by Jesus on the cross that he cries out spontaneously, certainly this man was innocent. He praises God and says that. Mark's gospel, we know he also said, truly this man was the son of God. It's possible that this centurion was converted right there on the spot. Many people think that he was converted. It's very possible. Maybe he was converted right after, but he was powerfully impacted by Jesus on the cross. One writer said Jesus' life begins and ends with the most unlikely people praising him. Luke chapter 2, the shepherds praise God, and now the centurion at the end of Jesus' life praises God. 
Second, you have the crowd, 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. This crowd has all of a sudden been silenced. This crowd has now been pierced to the heart by a sense of having aided and abetted a grievous wrong. They all leave heavy-hearted, self-condemned, and ill at ease. One commentator said, Imagine slaying the chosen one of God and realizing that a mistake had been made when it's too late late to reverse it. So they go home beating their breast. And many people pointed this out, that perhaps many or perhaps some of this crowd that went home were converted in Acts 2 at Pentecost. I think that's got to be the case. Many of the people here perhaps went home beating their breast, and all of a sudden at Pentecost they went to opening their heart and life to Jesus. Certainly possible. And last we have the acquaintances and the women, verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They were probably weeping and pondering, taking it all in. And one of the things I took away from these three responses is when we come to Calvary, we cannot leave unaffected. We cannot. It's impossible to leave unaffected. We should be impacted when we come to the cross of Christ. So I want to come back to the application from the two criminals and Jesus as we go to a close here. What are some application points from those two criminals? Well, number one would be this one criminal was converted in the final moments of his life, the final hours of his life. One easy application would be we should never give up praying and pleading with God to save loved ones, friends, relatives who still have breath in their lungs. We should continue praying and pleading that God would save them, continue pointing them to Christ because we never know that God may save them in the final moments of their life. Certainly that's an application. One pastor said, yes, this thief was converted at the last moments of his life, but he, he made this statement. He said, this thief did not get a life of gratitude to live. Didn't get a life of gratitude to live. And it just made me think, how many of us in this room have been Christians for years? God has given us many, many days, many years to live a life of gratitude. So are we living a life of gratitude and joy in response to what he's done for us? Stephen Nichols, who's written this book, a biography of R.C. Sproul, it just came out. I heard him talking about R.C. Sproul recently, and he said, that R.C. Sproul had the biggest smile. He said it was a mile-wide smile. He had this infectious joy. And he, he talked about how, I think he was talking about dinners at Ligonier Ministries are just not the same. He said they're boring without R.C. Sproul. I mean, R.C. Sproul would liven everything up. He had this joy, this smile. And the question was, why? Why did Sproul have this joy and this, this infectious smile? And, and Stephen Nichols says, isn't it because Sproul knew his sins were forgiven, that he had a substitute, that he had peace with the Holy God, and that's why he was so joyful. I thought that's a picture of what I'm saying here. We should be filled with joy and gratitude to God for what he's done for us. And the last thing I would say is this, is, this scene is really a dress rehearsal for the final judgment. The question is, will we end up on the right side of Jesus like this convert on the cross or on the wrong side of Jesus like the man who never believe in? How can we be sure that we're on the right side of Jesus like the convert on the cross? Well, we need to turn from sin and cast ourselves into the arms of Jesus, plead his mercy, turn from sin, and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we know that Christ will forgive us. He will accept us. He will take our sins upon himself, and he will open up to us the gates of paradise. Forgiveness is possible because Jesus came and took our place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage. 
a moving passage. Thank you for sending your Son out of love for the world to save us. And thank you, Father, that Jesus came and He died and He bore the wrath of God against our sins. And thank you that He cried out, it is finished on the cross. And thank you for this example of this criminal, Father, who was saved at the end of his life. Again, I pray if there are any who do not know you yet in a saving way, I pray that you would save them, open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Father, I pray that our lives would be marked by gratitude and joy as we live in light of what you've done for us. Even now as we sing, I pray we'd sing with joy and gratitude to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.